Revelation chapter 5, what comes to your mind? Well, for most of us, not much, because, well, as with a lot of chapters in Revelation, there's so many pictures, symbols, people would use the word metaphor or allegories in the book of Revelation that it, it can be confusing, it can be a little in the dark, and so we don't go there very often. And this is the reason why Revelation is at the end, not just because it's what happens at the end, chronologically, but the phrases, the language, the pictures that are drawn in the book of Revelation come from where? The previous 65 books. And without a good understanding, some type of mastering of some of the previous part of the Bible, that's why Revelation just almost never makes any sense. And yet, Revelation is the only book in the Bible that starts out with a promise, kind of a signpost that it's special, that says, hey, if you read me, you get a blessing. It's kind of strange, isn't it? You would think that Ephesians, Galatians, or some of these New Testament books that are meant for us New Testament believers that tell us what it means to be in Christ and talks about salvation, none of those have this promise. Just revelation. That when you read me, there's a special blessing. Revelation chapter 5 Let's just start out at the first verse. And I, maybe I guess before we start, I should say that the comments that I made to, to open church service about the, the tragedies that seem to happen every day now, this chapter comes to mind a lot because what we're going to be discussing really is the legality of the overall plan of God. I, as you, you know me, unfortunately. I like, I love to just, you know, take a small thing, take just uh, uh, the word love, uh, any, any word and just dissect one word. But I love to just step back and look at the whole plan of God from beginning to end. And this chapter describes the, 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 the principles of legal issues in God's overall plan. So let's jump into it. Chapter 5 and verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne, a book written within, and on the backside sealed with seven seals. Now right there in the first verse, there's a lot of things that need to be unpacked. When it says that he saw someone on the throne, well, God doesn't get up and go down for coffee, and while he's gone, somebody sits on his throne. There's no confusion about who is sitting on the throne here. This is God the Father. And it says that, He that sat on the throne had a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. Now, the descriptive language of that book tells us something about the book. First of all, that that word for book, it wouldn't have to be translated book. In fact, most of the times throughout the Bible, it's a scroll, something that's rolled up. And it says that it has writing, of course, within or on the inside, but also on the outside, the back side of it. And that right there is some information that tells us of what we're dealing with. In ancient times, when a will, a testament, uh, some legal document, they would roll that thing up. And because not everybody gets to see confidential things, you couldn't just unroll it and realize, oh, I'm sorry, this is Grandpa's will. To keep that from happening, they had a seal on the outside, but also they would write on the outside who was legally able, legally 
adept or who fit the requirements to open that thing to read it. So when this thing tells us that there's writing on the outside of it, that means it's not your ordinary, normal book like the Bible you walked in here with. Unless you have an outside covering like we used to do with brown paper bags in school and you put a covering on it and you, then you doodled. Unless you have something like that, you probably don't have writing that you wrote on the outside of your Bible. Maybe just a title for what it is. But in ancient times, writing on it meant that it was some type of a legal document. So get the picture. God is sitting on the throne and he has in his hand this scroll that has writing on the outside and inside, of course, and it's sealed with seven seals. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. You know, there's no detail in your Bible that is unnecessary, that is without significance. Everywhere you read in your Bible, it very well could have the key to something a hundred, maybe a thousand pages away. And in Jeremiah 32, they are getting ready to be removed off the land. This is when God told the prophets, you better tell the people that they have been disobedient so long, I'm going to remove them to Babylon. I'm going to be on the side of the Babylonians. I'm going to be with Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to come here, surround this country. He's going to remove you guys off of here for exactly 70 years, and then you can come back. Now, when Jeremiah and the other prophets would tell the nation that, what, did they, what was their response? No, 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 God's on our side. He's the one that helps us go through the Red Sea, those kind of things, so they didn't believe them. They got in their head that God could never be dissatisfied with them. Jeremiah knows what's coming. He knows they're going to be removed off. And in verse 6, Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Behold, Hanamiel, the son of Shalom, thine uncle, shall come unto thee, saying, Buy thee my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is thine to buy it. His uncle hasn't come yet. But Jeremiah receives from God this word that your uncle's going to show up here, and he's going to ask you to buy a field of property. Verse 8. So Hanamiel, mine uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said unto me, Buy my field, I pray thee, that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is thine, and the redemption is thine. Buy it for thyself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Just as an aside, have you ever wanted God to talk to you? This is a pretty good example. How did Jeremiah know that this was from the Lord? Because before it ever happened, he had given Jeremiah either a vision or knowledge that this would happen exactly the way it did. God told him, your uncle's going to come. He's going to talk to you, and he even told him what he would say. Put that in your toolbox. You ever wake up at 3 in the morning and you hear some phrase? If there's some a picture of someone telling you something, and the next day, two days later, somebody comes and they repeat exactly, verbatim, what you heard? Be prepared. God does this, these kind of things. Verse 9, I bought the field of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, that was in Anathoth, and weighed him the money, even 17 shekels of silver. And I subscribed the evidence and sealed it and took witnesses and weighed him the money in the balances. You're probably asking by now, why are we reading in Jeremiah 32? What does this have to do 
with that book in Revelation chapter 5. It's exactly right. It's, it's a property deed. What is being done here is his uncle is asking him to, to buy this land. Now, whether the uncle knows it or not, Jeremiah knows we're all leaving here. That this land is going to lay desolate. Nobody's going to own it. But after 70 years, we're going to come back. And so to know that his seed, his descendants, because Jeremiah knows he's not coming back. What they did is Jeremiah bought this property. He took this deed, this scroll. They sealed it. He had witnesses. They wrote on this thing the person who would be legally able to unlock it, to open it up. They put it in an earthen vessel. It tells us in a few verses. And they buried it. Kind of like a time capsule. They go off the land for 70 years. Jeremiah's buried over there somewhere. And when they come back, when the nation comes back, they find this. They dig it up, whether it had a marker on it, and they look at that scroll and they determine this is, see, Jeremiah's seed. The people that he bought, that he left it to. They would be able to open it and realize, Dad bought this stuff for us. He paid for it. They would be able to unlock those seals, open up the description of the land, and take possession of it. But understand that? That may not seem like yet it has any relation to Revelation chapter 5, but that's exactly what's going on here. This is a picture of a scroll with writing on the inside, writing on the outside, being sealed and not to be opened right away, but a long time later. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 5. Because what we're starting to see here very early on in just the first verse of Revelation 5 is what does this book pertain to? This thing is a title deed. It's a legal document. Verse 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? Who would be legally worthy. You see, you may have had the opportunity, possibly, if you've had to deal with someone's will, a parent, a grandparent, of going in in a lawyer's office, maybe in front of a judge, where something like this was opened. And that's what is happening here in heaven. They're wondering, who legally is supposed to open this? Who can open it? And in verse 3 it says, no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. Now that may not seem like a big deal. Do you think, well, who, who, big deal. We don't even know for sure what's in that book. Well, look at the next verse. John said, I wept much. And in some translations, it is the kind of weeping almost to death. It's the most uh, heavy, burden, emotional possible. He couldn't believe there, there's nobody that can open this. Now go back to verse 3. It says that there is no man in heaven or earth able to open this. Why does it say a man? Why not maybe an angel? Those angels are awfully strong. It said that there was a very strong angel. In the next chapter, there's this huge angel. And later in Revelation, there's one that stands, that strides the ocean. Those angels seem pretty powerful. Why, Why not ask one of them? Why not ask God himself? It says that no man, it's an indicator. 
It had to be a man. Who did God give the earth to? First, it says that the earth hath he, it says the heaven is the Lord's, and the earth hath he given to the sons of men. So he created this thing for man to dwell on. And what Adam did, in effect, was committed a transgression so bad he brought Satan in and basically turned over ownership to him. He obeyed him. That was part of the fall. God gave the earth to mankind. And this is why Jesus became a man. There was a legal requirement. If he was going to pay my penalty and yours, he had to become one of us. The Bible teaches this in the book of Ruth when it talks about Boaz being a kinsman redeemer. And what that meant was Boaz was a blood relative to purchase the land in that example. Jesus had to come here as a man to legally win back the right to the earth. They may be thinking, well, well wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. He, he paid the penalty for sin, and that's, that's on us humans, and that's right, it is. We humans sin, and we deal with sin. However, the Bible does indicate that even the earth, even the creation itself, has had a trouble with the fall. Go, go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter When you're in Revelation, you've got to go to a lot of other places in the Bible. That's just the way it works. There's no way to go through any part of Revelation without flipping back to a bunch of different places. Romans chapter 8. And verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creature, that word also is the root of creation, the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. The manifestation, that's when we become in all like manner like God's children. Verse 20, for the creature, for creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the Creature, creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption. You realize that when the full redemption has occurred, when Jesus comes back, just as our bodies put off mortality and we have a new body, the earth seems like it is destined. Well, we know the Bible says there's a new heaven and a new earth. This creation, this ball of wax that we live on, it wasn't always like this. You think back to the time before Adam and Eve, uh, before Adam and Eve sinned, what does the Bible tell us that the creation was like? It was a garden. Were there any thorns, thistles? There weren't those kind of things. The curse brought that stuff in. And this verse is telling us that even the creation, in verse 22, it groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. You ever think about volcanoes, earthquakes? The Bible kind of describes that in some sense as birth pangs. This thing, getting ready to birth a new one, get rid of this old. Now, there's a, there are some people, and this, this kind of drives me nuts, so I've got to be careful. They worship the creation because of verses like this. They think that Jesus came to die because he wanted to save the cardinal or the robin in your tree. That's hogwash. 
They live under the curse, the results of the curse, but he didn't come to die for them. He came to die for us. That's why we're his brethren and his sisters. But creation was affected by the curse, by the fall of man. And because of that, here in Romans it tells us, look at verse 23, not only they, not only creation, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. We got a redemption coming. What's in, I just, it's a small thing, but just wanted to point out in here, the Bible also kind of seems to mention on the edges that the creation is going to be changed when Jesus comes back. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, and we need to put an emphasis on this verse 3 when it says, No man. Jesus had to become one of us to legally pay for our sin. And they couldn't find one. And where did they all look? In heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, everywhere. See how unique Jesus is? He's the only one. He's the only one. Verse 4, I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Now what's that mean when it says he hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof? I can tell you where my mind goes when I read that. I think at the end of Matthew, when Jesus has been resurrected and he comes to his disciples, before he tells them to go into all the world and preach the gospel, what does he say to them? Behold, all power, where? In heaven, comma, and in earth has been given unto me. When did he say that? After he paid the penalty for sin, was buried, and was resurrected. You see, that's the payment. When he paid the penalty for us, there was certain authority that was granted to him. Power, he said, all power and all authority. What is authority? Authority is when you have the badge and... I need. I don't want anybody to take it the wrong way. Th- think of in a movie, so we don't think of anybody... In particular, in a movie, sometimes they'll picture a sheriff as a little potbelly guy who couldn't outrun a grandmother. And yet he has all the authority. He has the authority to arrest, even the authority to use violent force if necessary. But he doesn't have the physical power much, does he? He doesn't look like a, a California lifeguard. He's not in his 20s. He doesn't have abs. He probably couldn't, he, get, he, he moans getting in and out of his car. There's a difference between power and authority. Now, he has some power in that weapon, but power and authority are different. Power is the strength, the authority, you have the legal right to use it. And that's what Jesus said. All power and all authority has been given unto me. And because of that, that's when he said, you guys get out of here. You go and to preach the gospel to every corner of the earth. Verse 6, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders. And we're going to get to those elders in just a bit. In the midst of all that stood a lamb 
as it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So it's, that's clear, a depiction of Jesus standing in the middle, a lamb, a lamb slain. Now, that lamb, it always speaks of his first coming. You know, the first time he came, he was the Lamb of God. There wasn't much lion in him. When he came, they, they, they spit on him, they slapped him, they put crowns of thorns on him, they beat him, and he never even pushed back. The first time. A lot of the times when the Bible talks about his second coming, guess how it describes him? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's going to be roaring. Totally different. And quite honestly, I, it, you guys are around me enough, I almost always err on the lion's side nowadays because the whole world tells only about the lamb. We only picture him still bleeding, still nailed to a cross as a lamb. Well, he did that, thankfully. But he rose from the dead from that. And even though the Bible still talks about that in the picture of the lamb, it's usually to describe what he did the first time that he came, paying the penalty to win authority. Verse 7. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Now, don't read that too lightly. You might picture that as him just walking over and maybe with two or three fingers taking the book and then he backs away from the throne. I don't picture that. He said all power and all authority. You know how he walked probably to the throne? Take it, and now he's going. Because he has all power, he has all authority, and that's his dad. See, we, he has access. And the Bible teaches us that when we're covered in his blood, what do we have? We have access to that same throne of grace to find help in time of need. This is the creator of the universe, God Almighty, and he walks up to that throne and he takes that title deed to the earth. And now in verse 8, when he had taken the book, the four beasts and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. We need to work on who are these 24 elders. I mean, are they angels? Are they... Are they tribulation saints? Who are these people? The, the next two or three verses give us a lot of information about them. Verse 9, it says, They, those elders, they sung a new song, and here's what their song said. Thou art worthy to take the book, to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed who? The 24 elders are saying, that Jesus has redeemed us. Who did Jesus redeem? That would be human beings. But if you've been redeemed, that means you've accepted his payment and you're part of the church. When you are born again and you are part of the church, these 24 elders, they are a representation of the church. If we, we need about 40 minutes just to get into that number 24. But look what else it says. They redeemed us to God by how? Thy blood. And out of every kindred, that means 
Chinese, Japanese, South Americans, North Americans, Asians, Europeans, every tongue and people and nation. So they're clearly people. This is not a group of angels. The 24 elders, verse 10, it says, hath, uh, let's see, before we go there, go back to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, and look at verse 5. This is starting to describe the letters to the seven churches, and in verse 5 it says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's what we just read. Those 24 elders were singing a song that said, He is worthy because He hath washed us in His blood. So it's using the same picture. Verse 6, And hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. Now to us Americans in our culture, we don't put a big distinction between kings and priests. But Jewish people reading this or having listened to this, There's a huge red flag going on there. Huge. In the Old Testament, you could always, you could be one and you could be the other. But other than one person in the Old Testament, a guy named Melchizedek that we don't know much about, no one was ever both. No one was a king and a priest. They were always separated. In fact, go really fast to 2 Chronicles. I think this is This is worth it to make sure we biblically understand the significance of this. 2 Chronicles 26. They had a bad king back in these days, which they had a lot of those. 2 Kings chapter 26, and starting at verse 18. Uzziah is a king. And they withstood Uzziah the king. Uzziah is what? A king. He is not supposed to be doing a priest's duty, but look what he does. They said to him, It appertaineth not unto thee, Uzziah, to burn incense unto the Lord, but to who? But the priests, the sons of Aaron that are consecrated to burn incense, go out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed, Neither shall it be for thine honor from the Lord God. The priests were there saying, get out of here. You're the king and you've come into the temple, the tabernacle to burn incense. You can't do that. Get out of here. There was always a difference. Look at verse 19. Then Uzziah was wroth. He was angry and had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was wroth with the priests, because he's a king, he's not a priest. While he was Wroth with the priest, the leprosy even rose up in his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord from beside the incense altar. goes on to say that he had this leprosy until he died. This is just one of 50 examples. Priests and kings were to be separate. Except what happens when we get to the New Testament. This is why this is so amazing, the area that we were born into, the church. Age. What are we? Well, Revelation, go back to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. What did we just read? That when he bought us, when he purchased us with his blood, 
Revelation 1.6, He hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Do you realize how special being in the church is? See, people, this is why you read your New Testament. Paul was blown away when Jesus, the Holy Spirit, began to reveal to him what this church thing was. He, he was blown away. Paul was a Pharisee's Pharisee. He was trained under, the, under Gamaliel, Gamaliel the, the most astute law guy there was about the Old Testament. And he could not understand how can God make these people both kings and priests. Furthermore, how, how can it go to the Gentiles? I mean, you could even marry Gentile people. Now we're bringing them in, and they're kings. That's power and authority. And they're also priests, which means they can go into the presence of God there in the temple, the tabernacle. How's that possible? This stuff blew Paul's mind. That's why he talked about this great mystery that wasn't revealed in previous times. We just take for granted of what we have. Taking the whole scope of the Bible, when you are, which you are, a king and a priest, basically saying there's no limits to where you can go, to your authority, to your power. It's, it's, unbelie- it's amazing the picture painted here. We as Americans, we read this, it's not that big a deal. We don't even have priests in the definition that they had. We don't have kings the way that they had. So that language doesn't mean that much, but I'm telling you, a Jew living back at this time when they read this, good Lord, what is this group of people? This is amazing. Revelation chapter 5. Verse, let's start at verse 9 again. These 24 elders, they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. So this group of elders, the 24 elders, it's clearly, I think, it's a representation of the church. Those the only group of people who are both kings and priests. I mean, there's even more information. Turn to Revelation 19.8. Because, before you go back there, flip to look at Revelation 4. Verse 4. Let's see what these 24 elders are wearing. It says, Round about the throne were 24 seats, and upon the seats I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in what? White raiment. Throughout your book of Revelation, that image of someone in white raiment always means the same thing. Go to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. And here, it is talking about the marriage of the Lamb. And we know that to be a picture of Jesus being joined to His church. Revelation 19, verse 8, And to her, the bride, to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. Why? For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. When somebody in the book of Revelation is pictured as wearing white, fine linen. It's a picture of a believer, a member of the church. So now back to Revelation 5. 
We know what they're wearing. 24 elders. They're kings and priests. That's only one group of people. What are they singing? They're singing, you have redeemed us by your blood. See, Jesus didn't die for your horse or your cattle or your rabbit. He died for for you, people. Now, furthermore, I find this very interesting. In verse 9, those 24 elders are falling down worshiping Jesus, and they are saying that you are worthy to take this book, to take this legal document, this title deed of the earth. Why? For what reason? It says right there, For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. Do you realize what Jesus' blood all did? See, right there, it's telling you the reason he has authority, the reason he has power is because the shedding of his blood paid a penalty that nobody else could do. See, if, if any one of us even had the guts to take the pain of it, the laying down of our life, it wouldn't even be efficient or effective. Why? I, I've got sin in my life. I've been touched by sin. This is why one of the most important things about Jesus was he was born of a virgin. He didn't have an earthly man's blood in him. Adam's sin was not passed to Jesus. That's why the Bible calls him the second Adam. He's different. And the reason he is able, the reason he has legal authority to take this book from his Father in heaven, the title deed of the earth, and to open this thing, is because his blood paid for the redemption, not just of us, but also of where we live, the earth. Verse 10, And he made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I saying, Every creature, everywhere, saying, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb for ever and ever. Sometimes you read these things and you think it's just, uh, it's overkill. I mean, creatures everywhere on the earth, in the sea, and everybody's crying, everybody's praising. There's a reason it's so universal. What is about to take place is Jesus is about to come to the earth to undo what happened with Adam's and Eve's fall. He is going to repossess the earth. And he has the legal document in his hand. And he begins to pull the seals back to read to the world. This Revelation chapter 5 is one of the reasons we see in our world what we see. God does not, at this present moment, quote, control everything. 
We, we have these tragedies that take place. God's not in charge of that. The reason we have that is God gave it to Adam, and what did he do with it? He made a, there was a problem. He invited sin into this world, and ever since then we've had, we've had problems, disasters. And it seems like, it sure does, that it's getting worse all the time. Now, one conclusion, guys, should look out at your news or just look out your window when you see this stuff. Be reminded. God's not, quote, in control of everything. Yes, we as Christians, he looks out for us. He can reach into this earth and do whatever he wants. But legally, as of yet, he has not sent his son, the prince, to come back and to regain control. He's getting ready to do that. He is getting ready to do that. It does bother me sometimes when, when we as Christians, we say, well, God's in control. I know what some people mean by that. Some people mean that just everything that happens, that's God's will. It's not true. God's not in control of everything that happens here. When we pray, we invite him in here. We use our authority. He comes to our aid. Absolutely. He can do anything here. But he is coming back to repossess the earth this is why the Bible says in Psalms that he is going to kick the sinner out. That, that's the job description. Revelation 19, when he's finally coming back, he's on that white horse. All the seals have been opened, the trumpets have all blown, and the bowls have been poured into the earth. He's coming back. and The Bible says there's a sharp sword that goes out of his mouth to pat everybody on the head. No. Slay the sinner. See, they have been given opportunity, and the Bible tells us throughout all of this seven-year period, they shake their fist in the face of God, telling him, we don't want you. It's interesting to think about that thought of, I mean, who owns this thing right now? Do you remember when Jesus was tempted of the devil? The Bible says the Spirit drove Jesus after he was baptized of John the Baptist. He, went, he fasted for 40 days. He was out in the wilderness. And Satan came to him to tempt him. And one of those temptations was he took him up into a high mountain and he showed him the kingdoms of the earth. And what did Satan say? You fall down and worship me, I'll give you all this. Jesus didn't question his ownership. I'm not saying that Satan gets to control everything that happens here. I am saying that he's got a vested interest, and he does have some legal authority down here. That's why the garbage that happens, happens. There's too many of us people that have turned ourselves over to him to be his agents. Now, that's going to end at some point. But the Bible seems to indicate that, at least on some level, Satan does have some authority here on the earth for a while. And that's going to end. You talk about a happy day. When Jesus comes back here and this book has been opened and the seals have all been opened and this stuff starts to come to the earth, one thing about this is, where are these 24 elders? See, the beginning of this, chapter 4, John is taken to heaven. He is talking to these elders where? He's in heaven. Those elders, those 24 elders represent the church. 
That's where the church will be when this stuff happens. When Jesus takes that book, before that first seal is opened and this stuff comes into the earth, his church is already out of here, removed. And that is a happy thought. We are destined to kind of stamp our passport out of here. The Bible clearly calls us, we're ambassadors here, we represent God, but our citizenship really isn't here on the earth. This little book, it's the title deed to the earth, it looks like. And the authority that Jesus won by dying on the cross, by paying the penalty of shedding his blood for us. He redeemed us. He now is going to become the owner of all creation. And that's why when he comes back here, he legally sets up his throne to rule and to reign. You know, God is not legalistic, meaning he doesn't do stuff just because. But he is legal. He does have legal mechanisms. That's why to deal with my sin, there's only one way. It has to be the blood of the Lamb. That's the only way God has ever dealt with sin. His only written prescription for it is Lamb's blood. I I can't earn it. But I do have to accept it. Well, God is the same way in dealing with this entire planet Earth, all of creation. There's a legal mechanism that is described here in chapter 5. It's kind of amazing of what God is willing to go through and how he has communicated to us his plan. John got to see this stuff when he was taken to heaven. See, I don't think it, it's not saying that he was just laying in bed and he saw a vision. Chapter 4, verse 1, that says, He looked, and behold, a door was open in heaven. He was taken up there. He went to heaven. He saw the throne. He saw God sitting on the throne. He saw Jesus go over and take the book. He was up there. He was transported in time. He got to see what one day would take place. And because of that, we, we get an, an insight into how God is dealing with this earth. There are a lot of bad things happening in our earth. and Quite honestly, it probably, very likely, it's probably going to get worse. However, it doesn't mean it always has to be worse for us. And if it is, it's not going to last that long. It's an encouraging thing to think. Those 24 elders, the message of that, those people were in heaven singing to Jesus before any of this stuff was poured out. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for what you have contained in your word. We pray that each one of us would would come to a, a greater knowledge of what you have contained in these verses, the picture that you have painted. Father, I speak just for myself that you would help me to understand your great plan of redemption, your great plan of possession of this earth. Lord, I pray over every person here, and all of our extended families, that you would guard over and protect us, that you would send angels before us to keep us. I pray, Lord, that we would all live under an open heaven, that your face would shine upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.